Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, I, uh, we're going to get a little bit of a workout this morning from this text of Scripture. And as the quote from John Piper was read this morning, if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we've got to get the truth first, right? And I guarantee you that many parts of uh, the Word of God you've never heard before or never heard it preached before, or maybe never read it or heard it preached before. And so we always need to get the truth, and the truth always is going to apply to us in some way or another. So this morning I'm going to look at the preeminency of the incarnate Son over angels. Now, I've already said that we've embarked on a journey in which we cannot return. Once you discover the supremacy and the preeminency of the Son, Jesus Christ, you cannot turn back. You must go forward. You must grow forward toward an ever-deepening understanding and a more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? So that you can see Jesus in, in his exaltation as preeminent over all things. Now, you may be asking the question this morning. I asked it. Why is it important for me to, to even know Jesus as being preeminent over the angels? Well, partly so you don't remain ignorant in your understanding. And you don't drift away from who, whom Jesus really is. And you get a full picture of his being, of his person, of his position. And it's also partly that you don't get deceived by some religious system or some group or some persons who got Jesus all wrong. They twisted his person, his position, his work into something that is unrecognizable by Scripture. Look at chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. See, the Bible is concerned that you and I continue to grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ and not drift away from any truth that is connected with him. So when we worship, we know we are worshiping the true and living God. And we know also that the Jesus that we are worshiping is recognized and, and actually expounded in the word of God. That the word of God becomes our measure of who God is and who Christ is because this is God's revelation to us. Now remember... In the introduction to the book of Hebrews, I gave some possible reasons why the writer of Hebrews was writing to these Hebrew Christians. There was some kind of serious crisis that was threatening the purity of the church. The first one I mentioned was that of Roman persecution. That martyrdom and the threat of martyrdom had hit the Christians in Palestine so hard 
that they would rather denounce their faith and avoid persecution and death. That was one of the reasons why it was written. That's why in Scripture, in Hebrews, you're going to find the writer uh, commends the readers for patient endurance admit uh, in the middle of persecution and in the middle of suffering and to hold on to their eternal salvation that has been given to them by God in Christ Jesus. And then he, he warns the readers that, listen, God is a, com- a consuming fire and that it is tragic and it brings tragic consequences to renounce the Son. And he urges them to renew their commitment to Christ, God's foremost and final revelation to men. And the reason why he says that, because, listen, if you, if you renounce Christ, then there's no escape from God's judgment. If Christ is not your Lord, and Christ is not your Savior, and Christ is not your sin-bearer, and Christ is not the one who is reigning in, in your behalf to bring you to heaven. If he is not the one, then there is no salvation for you. And then there was a second reason why this writer of Hebrews writes to the Jewish Christians, and that was the attack of the Judaizers, right? Who wanted to really Judaize the Hebrew Christians. In other words, a strange new teaching was going around that certain Judaizers wanted to bring them back into the old system of Judaism and to their former religions. That's why he says in Hebrews 13, 9, to them, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited So he is really telling them, don't waver and neglect the assembly of together uh, together as believers, but to be under the word of God, to trust the word of God as being sharper than any two-edged sword, even to pierce down to the very depth of your heart, the depth of your soul, and let it expose you. So you know who you are in your sin. You know who Christ is as Savior and Lord and Redeemer. And then those two together, you can genuinely know that you're forgiven from your sin and that you're forgiven, not because you were good or could have been good or would ever have been good, but because Christ has completed such a perfect sacrifice that for him to, to, to say that he, his sacrifice was not perfect would be to deny the whole of the word of God. And so that was important for him to bring across. And both of those things could be possibilities. You see, those, it trickled along the book. As we will go through it, you'll see it. But there's a third reason why he wrote the book, and that was the false teaching of a group called the Essenes. And the Essenes had this unusual teaching. And part of that teaching was this. They taught that God would send two messiahs, one priestly and one kingly and that above those two messiahs would be the archangel michael who eventually of course would rule over both of them so see this view of angels comes in that somehow the angels have authority or a position above jesus as the messiah now that 
kind of teaching would completely subvert the biblical portrait of Jesus the Messiah. So the book of Hebrews is written to expose, to turn upside down this teaching and teach instead the complete preeminence and supremacy of Christ over angels, over all created things visible and invisible, and over all others. So Christ is taken and exalted to the place that he ought to be, the place where Scripture exalts him. Again, the author to in, uh, sought to inform his despondent, vacillating readers that Christ, the object of God's final revelation, is vastly superior than any other teacher or patriarch or religious system or spiritual angelic being. So what was the great temptation in the passages we're going to look at this morning? The great temptation is going to be this. For a Jewish Christian, because Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, that's the main audience there. We're the audience too. But for them to simply just acknowledge, for the pressure to be on them, just just simply acknowledge that Jesus was a great angel and even maybe an archangel, and that he was awesome, and that he was great in power, but he was not God. That was the temptation. That's the temptation today. We have major religious groups that do not believe that Jesus Christ is God and somehow relate him back to some angel that was great and powerful. See, this was tempting, especially in the context of possible ostracism from family, from synagogue, from jobs. From, uh, it, was, it was something in the context here where it was tempting because of suffering and even loss of life. So the pressure that they were under to simply stress Jesus is an archangel and not the Son of God. This was tempting because it wouldn't be an outright denial of Jesus Christ, but simply a change in emphasis. But do you see, if you change that emphasis, Jesus is no longer the one whom the prophets foretold. He is no longer the one that is spoken of in the Gospels. He's no longer the one that is exalted to king in Revelations. He's not that one anymore. He's not the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the beginning of all creation. He's not that one anymore. He's just set aside uh, by emphasis of just being with the angels. People today do the same thing in a different way. They conclude that Jesus was the best of men, and he's worthy to be emulated. Jesus also was superior in his ethics and morals, and we ought to model him. That Jesus was a great, one of the greatest examples of a sacrifice. And we, if you want to look to a sacrifice, look to Jesus and his life, and you'll see 
the greatest of sacrifice. Some said that Jesus was a perfect man. Yes, that he was created by God as a perfect angel for a special assignment among among men on earth. But my friends, I'm saying this for this reason. To think like this is to be in danger of compromising one's faith. In fact, to think of Jesus like this is to demote him and strip him of his real identity and inheritance. And that is the title of Son of God. Now this morning, as we look at the the scriptures before us, from verse 4 probably to verse number 8, you're going to find something. That the writer of Hebrews uses the Old Testament in a way that he is very skilled. In fact, the Old Testament for the writer of Hebrews is a Christ-centered book. You got that? The Old Testament is a Christ-centered book that every prophet, every type, every picture, every message in the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. That's how he uses it, in a masterful way. So when the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament, he often looks beyond the immediate context to a day when their predictions would be fulfilled in greater realities. Not just the apparent immediate context of the situation, but as he brings forth the Old Testament, the passages bring out and point to the one who would fulfill what the Old Testament prophets and teachers were saying. And so therefore, pointing to Christ, one verse after another, after another. Now, before I even go there, who are the angels? Well, I I must say this, that if you look in Scripture, the angels are amazing beings. The good, the character of good angels are found everywhere. If you just want to take your Bible and let's look at a few passages. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Peter 2, 11. That's Hebrews, right after Hebrews is 1 Peter's and then uh, James, excuse me, James and then 1st, 2nd Peter. But look at 2 Peter 2, 11. It says this. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a railing judgment against them before the Lord. Now, in other words, that angels were really pictures of meekness. It even tells us in Jude that the archangel Michael, when he disputed with the devil over the body of Moses, did not dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. They are meek creatures. Now, meekness doesn't mean weak. It means they have power under control, right? They are also, in Scripture, are wise. In Psalm 103, no need to turn there, it says they're mighty. Listen to what it says. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. The Bible says that angels are holy. They're set apart to God. In 1 Timothy 5.21, that they are elect. 
Paul told Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels. And then in Job and then in Hebrews again, we find that the angels are innumerable. In fact, the number it uses in Scripture is myriads, myriads of myriads of angels, meaning that there's no way to number them. There's so many of them. Just go to the sand uh, go to the seashore and, and pick up the sand, and then if someone gave you the project, go number all the pieces of sand. Could you do it on all the beaches in all the world? It's an impossible task. It can't be done. And we know now with the stars of the heavens, it's the same way. You know, there's not just a locked number. There's so many, they're innumerable. So Christ has made angels uh, with such a vast number that we couldn't even count them Uh, so in their character those are angels but in their work in reference to jesus christ you'll find that angels are all over the place in christ's conception in luke an angel comes and announces it an angel announces the birth of christ in luke chapter 2 an angel announces the resurrection of christ in luke chapter 24 Angel even announces the birth of John the baptizer, who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, where it says, well, that John the Baptist from prophesied in the Old Testament would point the way to Jesus Christ. Also, in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, angels minister to Christ, for it says, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And then in 1 Peter 3, 22 if you look right there because you're right there it says this who is at the right hand of god having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him and then we see in scripture in matthew angels shall execute the purposes of christ angels shall accompany christ at his second coming and then we know that angels also are curious and delight in the gospel of Christ, where it tells us in 1 Peter, those into whom angels long to look. And that was the very message of the gospel of Christ. They were curious about it. They were ministers of it in many ways. So from these references, you can conclude, and there's many more, I just wanted to give them to you before I, I, I go into our text, is that in God's creation, these pure spirit beings ranked very high on God's scale and in God's creation and were quite awesome. I didn't even mention Isaiah chapter 6 where the angels minister around the throne of God and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. See, the author of Hebrews depends heavily on the Old Testament because in this section, he actually uses seven quotations from the Old Testament to display the deity, the authority, and the sovereignty of Christ in contrast to angels. All right, now let's look at our text. And it says in verse number four, we're starting out with, and the first major point is as we move to our text and to see the preeminency of the Son in contrast to angels, the first thing would be this, that The Son is preeminent over the angels by virtue of his position. Look at verse number four 
it says this, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Let me stop right there. There are several things why Jesus has a position in higher rank than the angels in these passages. And the first one is this, that Jesus has inherited a more excellent name in verse number four. Now, don't miss this because this is not a mere distinction, uh, designation to distinguish one individual from another or Jesus from the angels. No, the very word name in Hebrew or in Greek uh, points to the essential nature of a person as to who they really are. In other words, that Jesus is marked by such a superior quality that none can compare or stand beside him, even to angels with all their excellence. Jesus got to be much better than the angels because he has inherited a name superior to theirs, and that name was this in verse number 1, or verse number 5, Son. Jesus is called the Son. Now, actually, he is quoting from Psalm chapter 2. In verse number 7 in the Old Testament, where he says, I will surely tell you the, de- the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, the reason why he uses son here, too, is because the son was the only one who was qualified to receive the inheritance from the father. The angels were never in that position to receive anything than they already had. The angels, once they were created, had everything that they would ever have from God, and they would be given no more of that, especially an inheritance that was only given to Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, it was originally sung at the coordination of a king, like David or Solomon. And don't let the phrase in verse number uh Verse number one or five and four and five uh, trip you up. I have begotten you. Don't let that throw you off because it does not refer to the son's origin of existence because there never was a time when the son did not exist. Although Jesus Christ was always the eternal son in relationship to God the Father, he was uniquely appointed and was declared at a a particular time in history that proved that he was who he said he was. Now, when was that? Well, look at, take your Bibles for a minute, turn back to Romans chapter 1, verse number 4, because this is where Jesus Christ was, this is the capstone of him being the Son and gives us some sense on what it means. In Romans 1, chapter 4, Romans 1 and verse number 4, chapter 1, verse 4, who was declared, notice what it says, the Son of God. When? With power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, at the resurrection of the dead. What did it prove about Jesus being the Son that was begotten, meaning this, that The sonship of Christ is essential to the property 
of the divinity of Christ. In other words, in the divine nature. In opposition to what he was according to the flesh, the son of David, Jesus was declared at the resurrection to be the son of God as to be equal with God, proving his claims were well-founded that the God who has come in the flesh has risen from the dead, having authority over death and Satan and hell, showing us that he is God in the flesh. He is none other than God in the flesh. And so that was never said of angels. That was never a designation of angels. So why is Jesus' position higher than the angels, preeminent over the angels? Well, because Jesus inherited a more excellent name. Secondly, in verse number 5 of Hebrews chapter 1, a second thing is that because Jesus is David's greater son. Now, he does not in Scripture here. This is very important for you and I for this reason. One thing that we're going to get to in Hebrews is this. To the writer of Hebrews, this is milk. Theology. It's not meat theology. He, he rebukes them in chapter 5 of not growing to the point where they're able to handle this stuff. To sit there and actually think with their minds so they can properly worship God and properly understand who Jesus is. And so he does not at all fiddle around with all the sim- simplicities of anything, but goes right to the, to the heart of the matter. And he quotes here from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which I would like you to turn to this morning. And in verse number, before you turn there, let's look at verse number 5 for a minute, and then we'll go to 2 Samuel. It says in verse 5, For to which... The angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That is the quote that comes from 2 Samuel. But let's go look at the context of 2 Samuel Samuel, to get what he is saying here. Because Jesus is David's greater son. Now that would sound very strange if you didn't know the background of it. But look at the 2 Samuel passage of scripture which i'd like you to turn there because this is the second reason that we see why jesus position is higher than the angels where this second reference that he uses to second samuel 7 uh we're going to look at verse 12 to 16 but in verse 14 of that passage he says here he presents the son as the one fulfills the covenant made with king david And where he says in verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. That's the passage in Hebrews. Now, while this text is a primary reference to David's son Solomon, a greater fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. And so this is how he uses it. Now, I have to ask this question now. What did the covenant of David actually say? Well, it says it right here. Look at verse 12 of 2 Samuel. Here's the first thing it says, that David's son will succeed him and establish his kingdom. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. You will come forth, uh, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Now he's talking about David. David's going to have a son. His son's going to be called what? Solomon. So he's talking there about Solomon, who is going to establish the kingdom. A second thing the Davidic covenant says in verse, is in verse number 13, that David's son will build the temple. Look what it says in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that was the second part of the Davidic covenant, right? There's a third part, and the third part is this, in verse 14 through 16, that's where the quote is found, that David's throne... That means his right to rule will be established forever and never be removed. Now get this, even if his son Solomon sins to a point which justifies God removing the kingdom from him. And did Solomon sin to that point? Yes, he did. Remember what Solomon did. He took so many wives of other religions that they moved his heart to worship idols and God, of course, was very displeased uh, with that. And that would, should have been Solomon's death, but it wasn't. Why? Because God made a promise to his father, David, that he would establish his kingdom forever, and his kingdom would never have an end. Look at verse 14 of Second Samuel 7. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. Now, we know that Jesus doesn't commit iniquity, right? or sin, but who does? Solomon does. And he says, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Verse 15, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So here is one of the major things of the Davidic covenant that God is going to establish a forever kingdom. Now, you have to have somebody that fulfills that. You remember in the story of Matthew when the queen of the south came to hear the wisdom of Solomon? That passage of Scripture, or that thought is, is recorded in Matthew where it says the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, this is what the writer of Matthew says, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, who's greater than Solomon? Remember, Solomon's kingdom was not established, but was actually divided. Whereas Jesus' kingdom will be established eternally. Therefore, then this points to David's greater son. So again, the writer of Hebrews looking at this passage of Scripture and looking way down here and seeing Jesus Christ fulfills the messianic promises of redemption and will establish the millennial and eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. Isn't that what it says in the Word of God? That the Father never said that of any angel. He only said that of Jesus, right? That Jesus was 
his beloved son and that his beloved son would be the greater son of King David who would sit on the throne in a forever kingdom that we are all going to be part of. I just got done preaching a whole series on the kingdom of God, right? We're all going to be part of that. Now, see, what is he doing? He's so minimizing the position of angels to the place that Christ is so far exalted that you could never conclude that Jesus was an angel or anything like it. In fact, the conclusion that we would establish would be established here and be inescapable is that the son is the eternal king. He is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who is to fulfill all the prophecies uh, recorded in the word of God. And then you remember what happens when Jesus actually comes into the world and begins his ministry? What happens at, at the, the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3? What does the father say? This is my what? Beloved son. And then he says this, I'm well pleased with him. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, again, the Father speaks as the, the Lord's image is, is transformed and the glory of God beams from inside of him. What does he say then on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. Listen to him. So see, the, the point is, that as we considered the son being preeminent over the angels by virtue of his position, the second would be that he is that because Jesus is David's greater son. Now let's turn back to Hebrews and look at the third reason why Jesus is preeminent over the angels. And it's found in verse number six. And he says this, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, this is the third reason why Jesus is exalted higher than the angels is because Jesus existed with the Father prior to creation. Now, what's happening here in this passage, in verse number 6, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And Psalm 97, 7, but he's quoting from not the Hebrew Old Testament written in Hebrew. He is quoting from the Septuagint. That is the ancient Greek transla- uh, translation of the Hebrew text. So he, he has a mastery of the Greek. He has a mastery of the Septuagint, and he quotes from the Septuagint, and this is what it says, and I'm quoting right from the Septuagint, uh, what he is saying. It says in Deuteronomy 32, 43, in the Septuagint, rejoice. You can't read it because you don't have the Septuagint. It says, rejoice ye heavens with him and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, it uses the word gods instead of angels. Now, there's a whole background to that which i i won't go into right now but uh you would say well how come it's not in the hebrew text and it's in the greek translation of the old testament well there is a reason for that but believe me it is definitely 
pointing to someone who would fill the billet of being an angel in Deuteronomy. So what is he saying in Deuteronomy 32? He says, listen, let all the angels of God worship him. The one who would come. Again, the Septuagint in Psalm 97, verse 7, and verse number 9, it says this, Let all that worship graven images be ashamed who boast of their idols. Worship him, all ye his angels. Now, why is that? Because the first thing God says about the angels' real position in regard to his son is that angels are to prostrate themselves in worship before the son, not the other way around, ever. So, in fact, the use of the word firstborn in verse number 6 has to do with Jesus' existence prior to creation and his sovereign power over it. It does not imply that Jesus was created by the Father because he has always been co-equal with the Father from eternity to eternity. Firstborn covers all the eons of whatever has been created, all creation from its beginning to its end of time, like Colossians 1 Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, Jesus is of higher rank than the angels because he created them. And the angels then, because he created them, are to worship him. And that's what you find in Scripture. You find the angels worshiping Christ all over the place. Matter of fact, They worship him in eternity past. They worship him in the incarnation when he becomes flesh. They worship him in his ministry on earth. They worship him in eternity present. They worship him in the coming eternity. They worship him all over the place in Scripture. So to think, to say that the angels would have any kind of rank over Christ is absurd. He destroys any view of of that kind of thinking. In fact, let's take our Bibles for a minute and look up some passages. Nehemiah chapter 9 in verse number 6, we get the sense of the angels worshiping God in Nehemiah chapter 9 in verse 6, where it says that may be hard for you to find. You may have to look that one up. But look, look in your Bibles. Look with your eyes. Look and see what it says there. In verse number 6 of Nehemiah, it says, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And then it says this, And the heavenly host, that's another way of saying what? Angels, right? The heavenly host bow down before you. So we see these mighty, these excellent, these supreme beings that are now designated in Scripture as being created by Jesus Christ, bowing down to him. Because in the rest of that passage of Scripture, it's already identified him as the creator. Last time we were in Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. And then in Luke chapter 2, notice again in Luke chapter 2, we again 
see the angels worshiping. This is a, a, a very familiar passage of Scripture. We just came out of the holidays. But look at Luke 2, verse number 13, where it says this, And suddenly they appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God, saying what? Verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Who are they? This is the heavenly host, the innumerable angels that have been created by Christ who are now at his coming into this world, praising God in the heavens. They're worshiping him. And then a great passage of Scripture. God, turn here. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 11. This, this is an awesome passage of Scripture. Look what it says of Revelation chapter 5. Verse 11. It says right there. It says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, can you make a mistake on who this is? Who's sitting on the throne? Who the angels of God in their vast number are worshiping and getting others to worship, pointing to his vast attributes by letting everybody know who this is, that this one who sits on the throne is someone who is rich in wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and he is to be worshipped. See, these are the angels that are pointing to the one who created them that he is worthy, we are not worthy to be worshipped. You and I, not worthy to be worshipped. No one in all the world created is worthy to be worshipped. Only Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped. Remember, Jesus Christ always was, never was created. Don't ever get that in your mind. He was from eternity to eternity. That's why he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And then turn back to Hebrews chapter 1 for a minute, and I want you to see what about the coming eternity Because Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 has a little interesting word in there that has has really caused a lot of problems, actually, when you you come to interpretation. But notice what it says in verse number 6. And when he, see that word again? And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, wait a minute. Again, the word again, where does that point to, I believe, from the text, because Christ has already come once, is pointing 
to a time when all the angels will, will worship him openly, showing their subjected, subjection to his exalted position. And this passage is referring to the second coming of Christ in judgment. When the angels again will worship him and it will be an outright public worship, all will know who Christ is. There will be no mistake about Jesus Christ at all whatsoever. See, isn't that what we need to know? That we, we can't get Jesus wrong. Do you understand that? There's many people today worshiping Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of Scripture. If we get Jesus wrong, if we create some other Jesus in our mind to worship, then we, that could be the doom of our salvation and bring on the judgment of God where we're lost for eternity because we didn't get Jesus right. See, we ought to be walking out of here with such a strong conviction and understanding of who he is. So no one can come and move you from there. I'm not done yet, but if you look over to Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to the Philippian church a most awesome passage of Scripture. And he wanted them, and in his own way, to get it also when it came to who Christ was and who's to be worshipped. And he says in Philippians 2, verse number 9, notice what it's written here. For this reason also, he says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Verse 10, Hebrews, uh, Philippians 2 so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 11, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize this is talking about even those who have rejected Christ in life will then one day bow before him? And call him who he rightfully is. I pray that everyone who's sitting here this morning will be on this side and be convinced here in this life, not only theoretically that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is to be exalted because the unescapable conclusion in this section this passage of scripture in hebrews is that the son is fully divine the son is fully god and the angels are not divine but created beings that worship jesus the son of god and that we would be totally convinced that not only theoretically we would understand it but practically it would so bring conviction to our heart that when we meet together in worship that we would know when we meet together it's to worship Jesus Christ it's to lift up his name and that we would be ready in our minds from all the distraction of the week and of the month and of the year that and there are a multitude of those too innumerable usually to move them aside and be ready in our minds 
to worship Jesus Christ in truth and who he really is and what the scriptures really say about him and really worship him together corporately. And then on Monday, when everything hits the fan, that we'll learn to worship him there. And all throughout the week, we'll learn to worship him and that we'll have this proper understanding of him so that we can come together in a very definite way every day of our lives that no one would move us from that position on who Jesus Christ is. There's one last thing I want to mention, and it's this, Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 7 and 8, but I'll quickly look at this one because it kind of like concludes what I just said. And it would be the second major point that the Son is preeminent over the angels by virtue of his, of his position in this section, that the Son is preeminent over the angels by virtue of his authority. Look what it says in verse number 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In verse 5, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. In other words, in verse number 7, we see that the angels, it says, who makes his angels. In other words, the angels, who are they? In verse 7, they are creatures. In verse 7 also, it says, and his ministers. Two, they are servants. They minister on Christ's behalf. And according to verse number 5, if Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne and his throne is forever, then they are subjects within his kingdom and are stationed before the throne. So in other words, they are creatures. Christ is the creator. They are servants. Christ is the ruler. They are subjects who minister around the throne and before the throne. Jesus Christ is the king who sits on his established throne. See, the contrast is there to show the difference between the two. Now, where it says that he makes his angels winds could mean that the angels are like winds, invisible, rapid in movement, capable of producing great effects like the wind can produce. In other words, that they are so quick to carry out his will and his purposes, they move swiftly wherever they go. And then secondly, that their ministers, their ministers of flame of fire, that they carry out not only the good things of God's purpose and plans, but they also carry out the judgment of God's purposes and plans. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Who poured out fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the, the agents were angels. They were the ones who did that. So, see, God has these creatures as ministers, and the angels can attain no greater heights. They are only the instruments of divine agency, and that is it. So, I'm not even, he's not even finished in Hebrews chapter 1 dealing with the subject, that it, it, it was such an issue, and it can be an issue again today, that if we replace Jesus Christ with any other object of worship, we are guilty of the same stuff. But brethren, what ought we to do with Jesus the Son? 
what's the conclusion that we have? If the son is preeminent over the angels because they are subject to his authority and will and his sovereignty, what are we to do with the son? There's only one conclusion. We are to worship him. Exclamation mark, period. We're to worship him. Now you have to ask yourself, do you? Worshiping him means you listen to him. You obey him. You love his word. You you want to hear what he has to say. And not only that, you want to put into practice what he, he has said. And so all the implications of what it means to worship takes on a very practical flavor in our daily life. Do you worship Jesus? And then when we meet together as a body, then we ought to blow off the ceiling. Why? Because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died in our place, who rose from the grave, who is declared to be the Son of God, who sits and reigns on his throne right now, making intercession for who? His saints. And not only that, I'm not getting there this morning. That's going to be for another message. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. Here's here's his conclusion. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The angels have been created for you and I who know Christ. They are our ministers. However they may minister through our life, they have been given to us. For those who will, what? Because I'm connected to the Son, I inherit something that the angels can't even inherit. Eternal salvation. That's awesome. What he's saying in here, this, here in this text. Now, where do you stand with Christ? If you haven't trusted him, today trust him. Don't let anything or anyone or any demon or every spirit or any angel hold you back from trusting in Christ. And then show you trusted Christ by living for him, serving him, and following him. And then we can worship together. Amen? Not only here, but someday with the heavenly choir. We're going to be worshiping in a way with no obstacles, with no hindrances, with with nothing to distract us. And it's going to be, believe me, awesome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for what's contained within the Word of God. Lord, please grab a hold of our hearts. Don't let, Lord, what is spoken to us from the word of god leak out of our minds lord take this truth and drive it home to our hearts until it convicts us where it moves us to make a choice to make a decision and i pray lord it would be that the spirit of god would move us to believe in jesus christ that as our lord and savior and if we do know him to live for him with great confidence and gusto in this life in this world And that we would have so practiced worshiping you here on this side of eternity that when we get to the next, it will be just another level that we didn't experience here and could not experience here. Lord, make it so. 
for us. Do what you have to do in our life, Lord, to make it so. Bring those who have not believed in you as Lord and Savior to salvation. Let them bow before you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, confess their sin and that you may reach down, Lord, and offer them this great offer, free offer of grace of the salvation of Jesus Christ that's provided in and through the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would do your awesome work in your people, that we would truly be a worshiping people. And I pray this in your awesome and your exalted name. Amen.